This show is brought to you in part by the University of Advancing Technology. UAT is a unique technology-infused private college that was founded by a geek for other geeks. Our mission is to educate students in the fields of advancing technology to become innovators of the future. UAT's campus culture is devoted to continually nurturing a thriving geek community where everyone's personal lives and professional aspirations revolve around technology. The beginning of the 21st century is an exciting time to be in the technology community. Current subjects of ongoing research and scholarship at UAT include robotics and embedded systems, artificial life programming, information and network security, game development, and other areas of advanced technology. Check them out on the web at www.uat.edu. Shoutcast streaming provided by Versus the World Productions, www.vtwproductions.com. Hello, this is John Scalzi, and you're listening to Versus the World Radio. So, would you like me to read from the... It takes about 20 minutes. All right. All right, here's the thing about this uh, particular reading, which is that I will read it, and at the end of it, like I mentioned to you, we, we haven't totally locked down the title. Um, and there are various reasons for that. But one of the things is that every stop I've gone, once I've read it, I ask people, what do you think the title is? And almost everybody in every other city has gotten it. Like, literally everybody else has gotten it. So, no pressure on you, but if you... <laughs> but if you don't get it, I'll be deeply, 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 deeply disappointed. No pressure. All right. What? Uh, Coke, I'm going to move the Coke out of the way. Because I dropped it already twice today. There's a bomb waiting to go off. Okay. Here we go. I'm only going to read you the first three sentences of Shadow War of the Night Dragon Book One, the Dead City Prologue. Because if I, I write any, if I read any more of it, blood will literally shoot from my temples. But honestly, the first three sentences of this thing are really, really all you need. Um, and to make it extra special because I think it's really the only way that this can actually be read I'm going to read this in my best William Shatner voice (laughs) which is not a good William Shatner voice it is just my best William Shatner voice so without further ado uh, I'm happy to present to you Shadow War of the Night Dragons book one The Dead City prologue Night had come to the city of Scandalaharia, the sort of night with such a quality of black to it that it was as if the black coal had been wrapped in blackest velvet, bathed in the purple-black ink of the demon squid Drendel, and flung down a black well that descended toward the deepest, blackest crevices of Drendelthingen, the netherworld ruled by Drendel, in which the sinful were punished, the black of which was so legendarily black that when the dreaded Drendelthingen flagon, the ravenous, blind, black badger trolls of the Drendelthingen would feast upon the uselessly dilated eyes of the damned. The abandoned would cry out in joy as the Drendel thing and flagon morden. The feared black spoons of the Drendel thing and flagon pressed against their optic nerves, giving them one last sensation of light before the most absolute blackness fell upon them, made yet even blacker by the injury sustained from a falling lump of ink-bathed velvet-wrapped coal. <laughs> That's sentence one. <laughs> With the night 
came a storm, the likes of which the eldest among the Scandalaharians would proclaim they had only seen once before, although none of them could agree on which one time that was. Some said it was like the fabled scouring of Scandalaharia, in which the needle-sharp ice rain flayed the skin from the unjust of the city, provided they were outside at the time, while sparing the just who had stayed indoors. Others said it was very much like the unforgettable pounding of Scandalaharia, in which hailstones the size of melons destroyed the city's melon harvest. Still others compared it to the oft-commented-upon moistening of Scandalaharia, in which persistent humidity made everyone unbearably sticky for several weeks, <laughs> at which point they were informed that this storm was really nothing like that at all, to which they replied, perhaps not, but you had to admit that was a pretty darn miserable time. <laughs> which is to say, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> I just did that in New York City and I had musical company a bit with me and we read it very much like a beat poem and it was just so, <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> I'm totally going to write a hell for that, right? I die and St. Peter's gonna be up there going, oh, honey. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and down we go. So that's the reading portion of the thing. Uh, thank you for all uh, indulging me on that. Uh, like I said, the uh, red shirts thing, again, don't tell anybody about it. It's all part of secret. I've generally sworn people to secrecy, like actually made them rise, raise their right hands and do stuff like that. But you all look trustworthy. <laughs> so I won't make you do that. I'll save that for tonight when I get to the actual, what? Yeah, exactly. Well, we, we have, we'll all have you geotagged. So if anyone of you actually speaks it, it'll be like explosion and cyanide will go and then the hounds will come. It'll be, it'll be fun. Uh, at this point, I'm going to actually open it up to, to questions. Um, so if you had questions for me about, one of you had questions about the movie deal, if so you want to talk to me about Stargate Universe and all the secrets that I have in my head that you don't know, uh, about any of the upcoming books, about writing in general, about my cat to which I tape bacon, or whatever you want to ask me about. Uh, any question uh, you can ask, the only, you know, there may be some that are just say none of your damn business, but you won't know until you ask. So let's go ahead and ask, open up to questions. Yes, sir. Movie deal. Uh, so would I. Well, here's what happened. Uh, the movie deal is The Old Man's War, which is my first novel, uh, is at Paramount right now. And the, uh, the director attached to it is Wolfgang Peterson, who did In the Line of Fire and Perfect Storm and lots of, other book, uh, lots of other movies. He was nominated for Das Boot, which is possibly his most famous film. It's a uh, screenplay is being written by David Self, who did Road to Perdition and um, 13 Days and some other, other things like that. And it's being produced by Scott Stewart, who used to be the executive in charge of production at Universal. So generally speaking, these guys know how to make movies, so which makes me very happy. Um, at this point, what we know is that the script is done. Uh, we're waiting for the principals to get back from South Africa, which, where they're shooting a movie, and then they'll move forward. I actually know whether or not there's going to be a movie made at this point by whether or not they renew my option, which happens at the end of next month, at the end of June. So if I get a, you know, if I hear the beeping of the money truck, then I know things are moving forward. If I don't, then you know I sell the dog into slavery. So um, <clears throat> it's just fine. The thing for me that was really f uh, frustrating about all of that was that I, I, we announced the movie deal in February. 
And I knew for two years prior to that that there was a movie deal in place, but we couldn't tell anybody because they just asked me, don't tell anyone. You know, we, a, first they wanted to get it with a particular studio, and then they finally got it with Paramount, and then they said, don't tell anybody. We still got to nail down the producer deals and so on and so forth. So I had two years where people would come up to me going, where well, are they going to make a movie out of Old Man's War? And then I'd be like, uh, maybe. You know, I couldn't tell anybody. It's really frustrating because, you know, I'd see all my other friends, you know, this is obviously, you know, you know, zero world problems to have. All my other friends were announcing their movie deals, and I couldn't announce my movie deal. So hard. Um, uh, and so finally we just, you know, they finally did announce, and, it was, and that was great because then people are like, well, who are they going to cast? So I was like, I don't know. It's not like they actually tell me anything. It's like the, the thing that they do is, you know, they, they pay you a lot of money, and they basically like, and now we will take this from you. And we will break its arms and move them around and look, we made a swan, you know. Um, so it's it, it's a completely different process. The the nice thing though is actually they've assigned a a a nice producer who comes and talks to me, and she's so very Hollywood. She's like, oh, we all love the project. Everybody's behind the project. Scott's behind the project. Wolfgang loves it. Everybody loves it. Everything is great. Everything is great. We love it. We love you. We love everything. Of course, you know we'll have to make changes. <laughs> And, you know, and my response to her was, obviously, you're going to make changes because it's a movie, it's not a book. And, in fact, here are some of the changes that I would probably think that you're going to make. And I went down my list of things that I think that they're probably going to make. And there's, a, like, a 10-second pause on the other, other end of the line. And she's like, oh, thank God I can actually talk to you about this. Because, you know, they're worried about, the, you know, it's like, it's my book. You're ruining my art. Um, <laughs> And um, I don't feel that way. You know, it's like the book is the book. The book is done. They're not going to do anything to the book. It will, it's going to be just fine. Uh, my hope, and this is the way that I always, I always say to people, my hope is that they make a really good version of Old Man's War that has all the stuff that the fans love and that I love and that when I go to do it, I feel as if, you know, it was a reasonable adaptation and they come away from it feeling good about the decision to trust these people with my baby. But if they can't do that, I wanted to make a shitload of money. <laughs> uh, because, come on, um, if it makes, you know, even if it's like, you know, tr you know, Transformers, we take the brains out and we just have things go clank, and it makes a billion dollars worldwide, my book will never go out of print, you know. I will be perfectly fine. Then we'll make the sequels, and all my sequel deals are at 110%. So literally, my sequel deal goes to 11 and um, so, uh, and it, it's sort of, uh, people are like, but what about the, you know, but what about the sanctity of this? Like, no, tons of money. <laughs> I got a kid going to college. I want my sequined boots, you know, so, because <laughs> this ain't cutting it anymore, you know. Um, so, but, but, but it's seriously, I mean, the, the idea is that you, the, the power you have as, a, as an author when you make a movie deal is the power to say no. And so you say no to the people who first come and say, you know, I've never produced a movie before, but I want to produce your movie. No, you go find somebody else. I want to produce your movie, and I'll give you an option of $3,000. Like, no, go somewhere else. You know, you basically get, you get to the point where if you're fortunate, and we were uh, extraordinarily fortunate, you get the right people eventually come to the door and say, we want to do this. It makes sense for us to do this. We are the people who can move this forward. And you say, okay. And then you start talking about money, and you extract as much as you can from them, and, and you, you go from there. The one really funny story about this, and one of the reasons that I am optimistic that they will actually make a movie about it, uh, Scott, Scott and uh, Wolfgang, and I can call them their first names because why not, um, got the you know, option of the book, and then they were shopping it to studios. And they were getting to the very end of an option period, and they had it at Paramount, and Paramount wanted it. Um, but there was just some problems, and so at the very end, they called up 
this executive named Mark Evans to uh, seal the deal, you know, come in because he's good at this stuff to do that. Well, oddly enough, Mark Evans and I are really good friends from college. And uh, so he, I was the editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, the Chicago Maroon, and he was the head of the documentary film group, which was the, uh, the uh, film uh, society there. And so we would spend, like my junior year, his senior year, we would spend uh, – to Monday and Thursday nights, you know, just hanging out while our, our staff slaved, you know, around us, and we were like, ah, feed us grapes. And um, <laughs> so they call him in, and he looks at this thing, and he sees Old Man's War, and he's like, fine, Old Man's War, whatever. He didn't see anything else about it other than the title, right? He does his magic. He does the thing that he's good at. He seals the deal. It's at Paramount literally at the end of the year, you know, Christmas season, just wraps it up in a bow, done. Everybody's happy. The option's renewed. It's now at Paramount. Paramount is taking over the costs and so on and so forth. And so he goes home that day, and he's like, okay, well, I just did this deal for this thing called Old Man's War. I guess I better find out about it. And he goes to Amazon, and he types in Old Man's War, and he says to me on the phone, like, like a week later when he and I actually talk about this, uh, he says, so I look, and I see who the author is, and the words right out of my mouth are, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> Because, like I said, he did this deal, and he had no idea it was me. And I was like, hi, Mark. <laughs> We're together again. Um, and one of the reasons I feel optimistic about this is that uh, he got promoted, and now he's president of production at Paramount. So it seems pretty good that the project that he brought into the studio, he might actually want to keep around. So hopefully we'll see it moving forward. But that's where we are with that at the moment. So uh, yes, in the back with the Smithsonian t-shirt. Right. Damn judges. <laughs> I I shouldn't have gone to jail for that just because I ran over seventeen people with my car. Um, no, the question is: Is do I have something against judges? <laughs> I don't think they're all stressed. I just the ones that are in my books. Um, in, bo in both cases, I mean, in the case of Fuzzy Nation, the, the, the judge is the single judge for the entire planet, and it's by design because the corporation that's administering the planet doesn't really want to have a lot of administrative oversight, so they create that bottleneck. So she has a lot on her plate, and so that makes her particularly stressed. With Judge Sin, who is in the uh, Android Stream universe, I just wanted him to be a jerk. And, and the fact of the matter is that uh, both of those judges were fun to write, and particularly Judge Sin. You know, Judge Sin is like one of my favorite characters in all my books because he's just like, you know, snap decisions. He's cranky. He's evil. He's just like, you are all full of crap and I'm going to find you just for being in my breathing space. And all, he's, he, he was a good enough character that when I decided to write the sequel uh, to The Android's Dream, everything about that sequel pretty much fell apart with the exception of that one character because that one character was so awesome he just pushed his way through like that i wrote it uh, the first chapter of that became a a short story chat book which i called judge sin goes golfing um which some of you have read, but the idea is that he's an alien and he loves golf and golf hates him and he can't golf at all and the one time the one time in his entire life that he's anything uh, you know uh, beyond like 700 over par. The one time he's getting a, a, a game that he will finally finish under par, four different people try to assassinate him on the same hole. Um, 
And, and, and his response to that is not they're trying to kill me. His response is, let me finish my goddamn game. Because this is his one perfect game, you know. Uh, and it was so much fun writing that character. And then when I rest, started writing the rest of that book, the rest of the book was such a letdown for me in terms of writing that I never finished that, and I just released it as a short story. I like writing vibrant characters, especially if they're just characters that are going to be there a little bit because, um, you know, those little side characters are, you know, uh, can tell you a lot about the world. They can tell you a lot about how, you know, the law actually gets administered. Um, they are great uh, people to push forward the plot after a certain point. Um, they are great tools, but if you're going to use someone as a sort of a, a person to push along the exposition, you know, push along the plot, and that's why they're there, you better do something than to make them just look like exposition monkey, because uh, science fiction readers are actually fairly sophisticated readers. They know when a character is just there to drag you through, you know, like, yeah, we got to get through this particular plot point. Come on, this is the way. We're moving, we're moving, we're moving. You want to make him actually kind of funny or, or memorable or interesting. And that's basically why I, I do that with my, with my judges, because they are, they have to be there. They're, they're plot points that revolve, revolve about them. Um, and as long as they're going to be them, I don't, I don't want to bore you, the reader, because uh, you won't forgive me for that. So that's why they're, that's why they're interesting and stressed. So, any other questions? Yes? I did not get my pony glitter, and I'm deeply, deeply bitter about that. Um, the, uh, my daughter wants a pony. And so, because she's 12 years old, and we're in the pony phase, right? And so, you know, she's, you know, what do you want? You know, and she's like, oh, well, no, nothing, nothing, maybe a pony, maybe a pony. <laughs> kind of want a pony. Why won't you get me a pony? And the problem is, is that I'm, I'm going to be stuck with a pony, right? Exactly, because she's going to get hit 15, and she's, all she's going to want to do is text her friends and stuff like that, and, and, I, and then we'll have a pony that we'll have to feed, and, and ponies hate me. <laughs> no, this is no joke. Horses and ponies and basically anything with those sorts of hooves, I've noticed that I... I go on them and they immediately try to buck me off or I go near them and they try to you know, put their hooves into my forehead. And I don't know what it is. I don't know in karmically, like in the last life, I was the owner of a glue factory or something. But the, the, I didn't say I was. But I figured karmically because there's something about horses. They look at me and they go, you know, normally I'm a herbivore, but I'll eat the shit out of his neck. You know, or something like that where they're just, they're coming to kill me. And... Uh, we went on my, our honeymoon, my wife and I, you know, we've been married for 16 years, but 16 years ago we went on a honeymoon, and one of the things that we do is that they'll take you on a, a horse ride. So we go on a horse ride, and my wife, who's, you know, 5'10", supermodel, attractive, strapping woman, gets on the horse they call El Diablo, you know, and they're off they go, you know, and they give me the one that they call old paint, you know, the one... <laughs> The one that's been broken, the one that is, you know, Senor, he is 27 years old, you know, almost as old as you are. And, uh, and I'm like, you know what, that's great. You know, give me the defeated horse, the horse that's not trying to kill me. And that horse still tried to buck me. <laughs> he's like, they, they, Senor, he's never done that before. It's like, it's me. It's not anything else, it's me. They know, they, it's my scent. It's that, you know, we must kill John Scalzi thing. So, so I'm worried about the pony, right? Because not only, you know, if I let the pony near me, it's like one day I'll be looking out my window, my office window, and the horse will be staring at me. <laughs> and the office is on the second floor. So <laughs> it would just be, be like, anytime you're ready, guy. 
So I've been, I've been, I've been avoiding, I've been avoiding the pony. So I don't actually want a pony. I don't actually want the lifetime supply, supply of pony glitter. Although apparently there really is pony glitter. This isn't a joke. There actually exists pony glitter because they do show ponies, and so they have glitter in the tail and in the mane and stuff like that. And everyone's, I see a lot of you well, no, nodding, going, "Yes, in fact, that does exist, John. How did you? You weren't being clever. No, you weren't." Um, so uh, that's sort of surprising to me, and I, and I know for a fact, probably for Christmas or my birthday, somewhere along the way, someone's going to just get me a big, like, 10-pound tub of pony glitter. <laughs> what the hell am I going to do with pony glitter? <laughs> it's a beautiful day. <laughs> <laughs> One tub will last me a lifetime, probably several lifetimes. They'll bury me with the pony glitter, right? <laughs> It'll be, it'll be an exciting day. I have to say, though, I mean, going back to that particular, I also did not get the robot butler that fight crime. And that's I'm very bitter about. I'm very, very bitter about that because that would be awesome. Uh, I will say, though, that writing that story, like I said, I had so much fun writing it because, one, I mean, I did that thing where I'm like sitting here and I'm laughing as I'm writing. I was like saying to my wife, you know, come on, come in, come in, come in, come in. I went, okay, I, I wrote this word, uh, the sentence that uses 11 black, the word black 11 times. You got to see it. And, you know, she comes in with a tolerant wife face, you know. <laughs> yes, honey, you're very clever. <laughs> but it was exciting to me because here's the thing about... Here's the thing about writing. Um, there's lots of bad writing that we all love. You know, it's so bad it comes all the way around to good and, and camp. And the problem is, is that the people who wrote the stuff that was so bad it was good weren't aiming for so bad it was good. They were aiming for good, and they just m failed miserably, right? You know, it's like they, they were driving towards, towards good. They hit a bump. They smashed and wrapped their car around a tree, and the tree was bad. Um, uh, so for me to write a story that actually aimed for so bad it was good was actually a challenge because you can't, it's not something you usually aim for. So the, so the fact that I, I, I wrote this thing, and it's terrible. It's genuinely bad, right? But it's a fun bad. It's not like the, oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe, I have to get rid of his books now, bad. Um, which it could have very well have been. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm inordinately and perhaps obnoxiously proud of this particular piece of writing. And people ask me, they're like, well, you should write more of it. It's like, no, you don't understand. I wrote 3,000 words, of which I can only read three sentences. You know, in, in public, if I do the rest of it, by the end of those 3,000 words, I'm, it's like uh, trying to run a marathon at sprint. You know, at the end, you're gasping, and I'm just about to fall over. So the idea that if I, you know, if I would write a trilogy, that would be 300,000 words. Um, not only would I be dead, but you all would probably have killed me because <laughs> it would have stopped being funny uh, 297,000 words ago, right? Well, no, see, that was the thing. That was the thing that got me because if, quite honestly, if my agent had said, you know, uh, like I said, still bitter, haven't fired, you haven't fired him yet, but came close. Um, if he had actually said, well, yes, we'll get you a galley, I would have gone the Philip K. Dick route, caffeine and amphetamines for three days, just cranked it out, because they're going to rewrite it anyway, right? <laughs> but it would have been awesome. So, <laughs> So disappointed. So disappointed. But no, but uh, the problem with farce, the problem with farce is there's only... Two people have done a really good job with it. One is Douglas Adams, and the other is Terry Pratchett. You, uh, Neil Gaiman counts as half because he wrote Good Omens with uh, Terry Pratchett. Um, and everybody else just falls down on, on farce because it's really hard to do, and it's really hard to keep up, too. I mean, one of the things that people forget about 
Douglas Adams and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when I was like 12, right? And I literally thought I was going to pee myself to death because I was laughing so hard in the back of the car, going, oh, I can't believe this. Oh, my bladder peritonitis. I did not want to go at age 12. You know? <laughs> But you get about halfway through the book, and then you're sort of used to the rhythms of it. And then the additional books, the other four books in the trilogy, um, as Eddie Izzard would put it, but just basically reminded you how much you liked the first book, and they were kind of meh. Um, so it was a, it was a one-note joke that got carried over five different books, and that was fine, you know. But it was still it's still really hard to do. It probably should have just been the one book and stayed put and and kind of moved on from there. But um, so yeah, I I suspect that I would. I'm a I'm a reasonably funny writer. You know, but most of my humor does not come from farce. It comes from sarcasm, back and forth, and the dialogue, all that sort of stuff. Occasionally, I do ridiculous things like having somebody fart somebody else to death. You know, <laughs> don't act surprised. It's the first chapter of Android's Dream. It's it's and it's you know and it's apparently sold very well. So you you all are dirty, dirty people. Um, <laughs> But, you know, so you can do absurd things, but part of the way to get away with absurd situations um, is to play them completely straight. If I had done someone farting someone else to death as farce, um, then it would have been really over the top and it would have been really sort of dreadful. But if I actually do it like, you know, he's serious about it, and in that universe they're playing it straight, um, then, it, then it goes across much better. So I don't suspect that Shadow War of the Night Dragons book one, The Dead City, would be anywhere as good as those 3,000 words of the, of the prequel. Um, so I'm, I'm perfectly happy to let you all imagine that it was, would be the funniest damn book you ever read and sort of take credit for, for that as opposed to actually writing it and having you go, oh, yeah. So that's where we are with that one. Yes, sir, in the Soylent Green shirt. Yes. Um, the question was uh, for Fuzzy Nation, which is the book that just came out. I commissioned a power ballad for a, an end credits power ballad for it. Which, if you haven't listened to it, go to YouTube and type in the words "Fuzzy Man," and it will take you to it. And I'm happy to say, without reservation, that that is a completely awesome song. Like I, when I when I commissioned it, I said. Uh, Paul and Storm, they're musical comedians. I'm pretty sure most of you know who they are. And I basically said, I want you to, like, at the end of Armageddon, when they have that, that uh, Aerosmith song that was written by Diane Warren and was really horrible yet kind of awesome anyway, you still can't, you know it's bad, but you still have your hand up with the lighter. <laughs> I want that, but more. And they were like, on it. You know, challenge accepted. And they really, they really pulled it off. There's like one part in the song where they're like, you know, the hand claps come out and you can see like the whole stadium going like that. And you're just like, I'm listening into my house and I'm like, I'm like weeping in joy because it's like, it is again, just so ridiculous. But at the same time, you're just like, yes, nailed it. You know, has the, has the, has the guitar solo, has the overwrought piano, has the completely nonsensical lyrics. And if you listen, talk, talk to Paul and Storm about it, the, what they say is that they imagined that this was a song that they'd written bombastically for a completely different reason. And then it had been, they, someone came to them and said, we need a song for this movie. And they said, oh, yeah. And they inserted the words fuzzy man, you know, instead of whatever it was before. You know, it could have been, you know, doctor man or pizza man or any other sort of man. 
but they put fuzzy there. And so, sort of like when St. Elmo's Fire, if you remember that movie, that song, St. Elmo's Fire, was really about something else completely different. But they, they hired John Parr to, you know, come in and every once in a while, you know, over this other song, he, he would sing, St. Elmo's Fire, you know, and everybody thought it was about the movie. Um, same sort of thing. It was beautiful. This thing, I could see them doing like a rock musical for, you know. But they're busy people, and I don't know, and I don't have that much money. So uh, that is the other thing, because th these things aren't cheap. You know, I, you know, to entertain you folks with these these sorts of things actually costs money out of my pocket. Uh, it was totally worth it. I mean, uh, because that song is awesome. But it's one of those things I can afford, like maybe one of those uh, 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 a trick. Um, although, actually, I spent more money um, with Fuzzy Nation uh, because I also commissioned a fuzzy puppet. Uh, that I went, I had at one of our one of our stops. Uh, Mary Robinette Cole, who is a Nebula-nominated author, and in her previous life was also a puppeteer. I commissioned her to write uh, to make a puppet because she does these things all the time, and it's terrifying. <laughs> this puppet is terrifying. It's awesome, and it's exactly what I asked her to make, and it's absolutely terrifying because she is a professional puppeteer. So you see her move the puppet around, and it still looks like the puppet's alive. You know, like, you know that she's moving it, you know, she's talking out of the little, you know, mouth hole and stuff like that. And at the same time, you still can't, you still can't stop looking at the puppet. And it's like, it's like it's saying, welcome to the uncanny valley, you know, and it's just like, and I was like, this is awesome. Please put it down. <laughs> Um, so while we were, when we were in Seattle, because they charged money to, to see me, um, I had two things. I had Molly Lewis play the Fuzzy Man song on ukulele, which was very, very cool. Um, and then, she, then uh, uh, Mary came up and she did the puppet. And coincidentally, someone had brought me a little handcrafty pup, uh, fuzzy. You know, it was about this big and it was very cute. And so what I did was, you know, she, Mary was talking about how the, the, how the fuzzy was upset with me because I left it in Portland in a trunk, you know, or something like that. And so I was like, by way of apology, I gave it the little, you know, plush fuzzy. And so she grabs it and she's like cuddles it and it's all it's very cute. And the woman who made the, the, the little plush fuzzy is sitting there going, because <gasps> she's like, I didn't know it could be it's so beautiful, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And then there was a signing line that just, you know, was, it was very long. And so Mary went up and down the line with the puppet. And, and people were coming up to me. It's like, Mary came up the line. Well, show me the puppet. It's awesome. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm scared of the puppet. I know. I know. Me too. So we had that bonding, being terrified of the puppet. Now, the thing is, the puppet is eventually coming to my house. It's at Baycon right now where it's terrifying people in San Jose. But it will eventually come home and it will eventually be in my office and I will no longer work in my office because <laughs> it will be staring at me going, you have a deadline, you know, or whatever it is that it will do. And uh, just, all of a sudden, I will be living in Twilight Zone, and I'm terrified. Well, yeah, exactly. When the fuzzy meets the pony, the only person who's going to lose in that one is me, sir. <laughs> they conspire. You know, my wife comes home, and there's only like, this, like, smear, and it's like, and you see the pony going, what? <laughs> Uh, any other questions? Yes, ma'am. And then I'll get to you, sir. Subject. Why? What are your thoughts on the cancellation of Stargate Universe by sci-fi? Any other information you know about the Stargate franchise, like the last movie? Okay. I like how you said, can you tell us about the cancellation of Stargate Universe by sci-fi? 
there's a lot there's a lot of uh, bitterness at sci-fi on this particular one. I think we saw it coming from a, from a while away because we got transferred onto um, uh, Tuesday. Um, and the problem with Tuesdays, so, uh, Friday night was actually a very good night for science fiction on sci-fi because there wasn't a whole lot of competition uh, for the networks um, because they had basically written off the weekend and the weekend starts uh, Thursday at 10 uh, for them. Um, but Tuesdays were, you know, the, we came out and our, we were, first we were across playoffs, like I think they were baseball playoffs. Um, and then we were across the election and then we were across Dancing with Stars, which uh, apparently a high number of nerds actually watch. <laughs> Um, and so our ratings just went vroom. Um, and, and so it, it was what it was. I mean, that's, that's why they canceled. They also killed off Caprica by doing the same thing. I suspect, I mean, the, 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 the great narrative of, uh, of nerds is, is that, you know, they, you know, they go out of their way to kill science fiction stuff. But it's not so much that they go out of their way to kill science fiction stuff because they go out of their way to kill just about everything. Um, it's more of uh, just that they are living in hope that they can establish a beachhead on Tuesdays. Uh, and they, it, just didn't, it just didn't work out. If you look at the DVR uh, stuff, the, you would see that we had the same number of people week in, week out as we had the previous season. But the problem is, is that even though they can track the DVR and they know that we had all those people, um, the advertisers still want you to watch the commercials because that's what they pay the, the network for. So in all honesty, you know, and this is why I keep repeating this to people, if you actually want your, your uh, uh, shows to succeed, watch them when they come on, you know, make an appointment to see them, and you know, leave the TV on while the commercials are on. You can go do what you want to do, but they need to actually play and, and also bribe the, your local Nielsen family. Um, so that's where, I mean, that's where it was coming. I mean, and I think we knew early on that the ratings were, were down and that, you know, the writing was possibly on the wall, which is one of the reasons why the final episodes of the season had that arc where even though there's opportunity for things to happen in the future, all the sort of emotional and character arcs sort of get closed off and, and finished up. So, because we, we saw it coming. I don't suspect... Uh, anytime soon that we'll see anything in the Stargate universe. I know that Brad, Brad Wright, who is the producer, and uh, Robert Cooper were pitching some movies that would actually sort of be a multi-universe movie and all that sort of stuff. And apparently, they, you know, MGM just said no, and that was that. The thing about Stargate, though, is that it's owned by a corporation. And when things are owned by corporations and you look over, you know, it had a 15-year run. It probably generated a billion or more dollars in revenue for MGM or whoever will inherit MGM's, you know, a library. Um, they will eventually uh, bring it back. And when they bring it back, who knows, you know, maybe there'll be some uh, Stargate Universe stuff in it. Maybe there'll be some Atlantis or SG-1 stuff in there. But it is inevitable, in my opinion, that Stargate, nothing on a corporate level, nothing ever dies because it is a, it is a franchise and revenue opportunity. And it's, it's horrible to put it that way. But, you know, you guys will watch anything. So, you know, that's what, basically what they think. So um, you, will see it, you will see it again, is, is, my, is my thought. And I'm not opposed to that, personally. I mean, I would like to see more of, you know, what happened with SGU. I mean, I know where we were going with it because I was part of that whole, you know, hard part of that whole discussion. It's like, now we need to talk about what Destiny was actually supposed to do. So I do know, and I can't tell you, because there is a possibility that one day they'll want to revive it, in which case, you know, it would be unfair to you to tell you guys what we were thinking about it. Ask me in five years if it's still dead, then, you know, then I think spoilers will be done by that time. So, uh, 2016, I'll totally tell you. So, 
Uh, yes, sir, over here. Um, uh, a little, um, but it's mostly tied up with the old man's work because that's my biggest franchise. It's the one that everybody knows. And part of it, though, is that once that m gets moving forward, then it's actually green, you know, totally green lit instead of having the sort of blinking yellow light that we have at the moment. Once it goes green, then my film agent goes into overdrive because the idea that you can sell a book if you can sell one book to Hollywood, then you can sell the rest of the books, but you actually have to be in production. They actually have to be making it because then the, uh, all the other people will go, okay, so now that, you know, they've actually, someone has actually put $100 million on, on your marker, so you must be doing something right, and that's when the rest of them will start being looked at in that case. So part of what I, you know, so the nice thing for me is that I have these various other properties, Agent being one of them, Android's Dream being another, God Engines, which I think would make an awesome sort of $8 million horror film um, for somebody uh, would be another one, and then obviously the thing that I just read you clearly needs to be picked up by Paramount. Um, <laughs> and we'll see what happens with that. Uh, hey, Mark, I have something for you. Um, but uh, a lot of it just depends on where that, a lot of it just depends on where, what Old Man's War does, frankly. Um, and the thing to do that I do is not worry about any of that. Um, I tend to be thinking, the thing I need to do is I write my books, and then if they sell, like, for example, if they sell in you know, Germany, then great, you know, because that's free money. If someone wants to make a movie out of it, great, because that's, you know, free money. I can sock all that away and, you know, pay for, pay off my mortgage, pay for my daughter's college, buy a pony three counties away, you know, whatever it is that I do. It makes it, uh, but uh, you can't expect it. If you spend a lot of emotional energy hoping, God, I hope somebody makes a movie out of my book, um, you will inevitably dis be disappointed because you can put out as many books as you want. There are like 40,000 books that come out each year. Among the major Hollywood studios, there are usually between uh, 180 and 240 movies that come out a year. It's a really small number. And the number of those that are actually based on books is even smaller. And the number that are actually based on science fiction books is even smaller still. There's maybe like one or two at most a year. So if you really think that, you know, why hasn't it sold to movies, then um, you're going to spend a lot of your time being angry. I'd rather not be angry. So uh, well, I think we have one last question. Or maybe that depends on how question. Quick question. Uh, the video game rights are, are sucked in with the movie rights. So what that generally means is that once the movie gets started, they'll push it to you know, someone and say, make a quick, crappy five-month development period for this thing. Uh, hopefully they won't do that. Um, and in fact, one of the things I will suggest to them is that frankly, it's much better to not have a crappy video game that comes out with a movie and instead make a video game that is actually good that people will want to play because that will be a revenue center in itself. Yes, sir. No, no Easter eggs in the Stargate universe. Uh, universe, Boy, that's redundant. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, there are things that I've done that only I recognize are there. Um, and that, for me, is the ultimate sort of Easter egg. Like the, one of the opening uh, episodes, they're, they're diving, into the, diving into the star to recharge. Um, and that, that star is red. It's a red dwarf. That's totally me. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's and it makes me feel so good that it's like you know, unless I've told you this in a in a con or something like that, then it's you know, it's Skullsy's star. 
nobody else is, you know, ever, you know, will ever know, but it's, you know, instead of being that big, you know, yellow star, it's a tiny red star, and, and that became part of their lore, because that was like, well, we always have to stop at red stars, and at the, one of the final episodes, they, they tried to recharge at a, a blue supergiant, which was madness, madness, that's crazy talk, but, you know, but part of, like I said, part of it, that's me. They did do uh, one scene in, like, one of the last episodes of the first season, where a guy is, you know, uh, driving Rush somewhere, and, uh, and then Rush, you know, gets dropped off and says to him, or, you know, you're fine? He's like, yeah, I've got reading. And he does that thing where he flashes Old Man's War. And, and what the greatest thing is that it flashes. And then all of a sudden there was a sound of like 10,000 DVRs pausing <laughs> and people rushing to their email to email. Did you know this happened? <laughs> Oddly enough, I did. <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was actually very pleased that they, and they did that completely unsolicited. I didn't ask them for it or anything. They were like, would you mind if we did this? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, free commercial for my book in front of uh, two million people? No, not at all. Please do. And they're like, all right, we need to have you sign a release form. I was like, no, you don't. Just do it. And they're like, no, no, we have to. Do it. And so I had to sign a release form allowing them to, to do that. Now it was crazy, but what can you do? Uh, we are out of time. So you come up and I'll answer your question when at, at the end. Thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Hi, folks. This is the Emperor. I'm here to remind you to listen to the Emperor's Court every Saturday from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern right here at VTWProductions.com. That's the Emperor's Court, your three-hour break from Internet porn.